Hi guys, it's Tats here from Castagra, and you're listening to Specified, the building materials, coatings, and construction podcast. The goal of this podcast is help the entrepreneurs, the difference makers, and the game changers in the building materials and coatings in construction industry. Today's guest is Eric Boycott, who is the co-owner of Canadian Building Technologies. His company develops and distributes innovative building materials that meet the challenge of the changing world. Eric, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks, Tops. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad too. I, I know you have you work with us a bit, and I know you have a wealth of experience in Japanese business and in North American business, and I thought the listeners would really benefit. Now, before we get going, I have to admit something. Uh-huh. I have one fear about this interview. And do you know what it okay. is? What is that? <laughs> I haven't been back to Japan in a while and I was born there and I haven't right. lived long duration. So my goal of this podcast is try not to say something that will insult the Japanese culture. If I can make it through the whole <laughs> interview and not get any calls from Japan, that would be a big win for me. So I'm going to try my best, Eric, and I'm excited to learn more about your experience in between those two cultures. All right. Well, thanks for having me on. So tell us a bit about your background. Okay. Well, I hope you don't mind if I start out with a shameless plug about my company. Yeah, no problem. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I'm the co-founder of Canadian Building Technologies, and we have a, a suite of wall assembly materials focusing around our core technology, which is magnesium oxide cement boards. And with that, we layer on different products like Castagra Ecodor or Panasonic Evacua Vips, which is a vacuum insulated panel. And the whole idea is to make a fireproof, waterproof, mold resistant, something simple and thin for wall systems. Because the building codes, as you may know, have been changing here locally in Vancouver or California next year and all around the world. And using traditional products is becoming frustrating for the builders. Yeah. So that's our solution for the problem and hopefully we'll make, make the best of it. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Now, can you tell us more about your sort of heritage, your sort of past in terms of your growing up and your career? Well, starting with my name, my name's Eric Boycott. So I'm an Asian-looking guy. I go out and meet people, and they look at my business cards and say, boycott. So I always tell them, <laughs> don't boycott me, okay? <laughs> and that gives a little chuckle. Yeah. But, I, I, yeah love, I, I love from... that last name, by the way. But... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it, guys... Union guys love that one too. <laughs> but at some point, there's some positives, but there must have been some challenges kind of between cultures. Can you can you tell us about some of those things, the pluses and the minus of being you? Sure. Okay. Well, I'm starting out with where this name came. My father is originally from London, England, and he went over to Japan and met my mother. So I'm half Japanese and half English, and I'm married to a Japanese wife because I spent a good eight and a half years working my first career over there, met my wife, spent my 20s there, and we decided to come back to Canada and had a daughter and son. 
they look more Japanese with the last name Boycott too. But it is challenging sometimes growing up here. I, I was born in Vancouver, went to school here. Back in my time, it was, it was more Caucasian background, but today Vancouver is more Asian. And you know, there was a little bit of trial and error growing up. Japanese thought I was Caucasian and mm-hmm. Caucasians thought I was Japanese. So mm-hmm. where did I fit in? Mm-hmm. So that was a bit of a challenge. Whenever I went to Japan, they never knew I was Japanese until I told them yeah. that I was Japanese and, and my mother's Japanese. And then they kind of opened up more. Yeah. And then I started speaking to them in their own language. So that broke down some barriers and I just continued from there. Yeah, it it must have helped you really stand out though with that last name because I know that <laughs> you know that's that's one of the things that probably was a big plus for you once they got to know you. Yes, it was a plus. Another funny story is Boycott is a famous name of a cricketer from England, oh. Sir Geoffrey Boycott, oh. and all these Indians or, or British people would say, "Hey, do you want to come play cricket?" But honestly, <laughs> I've never played in my in my life. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, that's a very interesting side story. But yeah, yeah. I mean, so you said you started to work for a Japanese company for eight years, right? What was that like? Yeah. Well, let me take a step back first. Yeah. Just to give you uh, people an understanding how I grew up. So growing up in Vancouver, my dad, instead of getting me to play ice hockey because I'm Canadian, got me to do martial arts and Ah. judo. So I started at the age of 20 and did various martial arts up through my mid-20s. And my mom, she's a famous Japanese flowering teacher. It's called Ikebana. And she had me doing that when I was a child. So this um, kind of taught me the Japanese culture and self-control and physical attributes at a quite an early age. So that was kind of my cultural background growing up. I didn't learn Japanese, though, because in those days, when you're living in Canada, you have to speak English and only English. But now my children's generation, they encourage you to keep your culture, keep your language. And so I never really learned as a child. but. After university, my first job, I didn't know what to do. It was in the early 80s. It was very hard to get jobs back then, as people may remember. A lot of companies weren't hiring because of a recession. So I had an opportunity to become a high school teacher out in Japan. And coming from a science background, I'm wondering, how am I going to do this? It was quite outside my comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I was very nervous in front of people. And being a teacher, you have to stand in front of an audience and teach and coach people. So my first job was a high school teacher out in Tokyo. And I figured, oh, I'll just stay one year or two years and get to see my relatives. But I ended up liking it so much, I stayed there for eight and a half years and <laughs> met my wife. <laughs> so I guess... Through that, I I learned new skills, got outside my comfort zone, became a a teacher, a coach, a leader. And during that time, I took a step away as being a full-time staff member and started my own school. 
with my mother-in-law, by the way. <laughs> so at age 28, we started from almost nothing, through 10 students in the first year, up to 200 students in two years. And that taught me how to manage people and run a, a business. Very nice. So how, how did you take the leaf into building materials? Yes, well, it's, uh, life takes interesting turns. My wife and I got married in Japan, and we were running the school business. But I was approaching 30, and I was kind of thinking, well, do I want to raise a family over there in Tokyo, which where it's quite such a rat race in terms of lifestyle. It's fun when you're in your 20s, but raising a family, I had second thoughts. So we ended up coming back to Canada, Vancouver area, and started a family. But I needed to find a job to earn income again. So my first job was, believe it or not, an insurance company, a very large Canadian insurance company. Mm -hmm. And I had to take several tests, interviews. It wasn't easy getting in. And it certainly wasn't easy getting started because it's 100% commission sales. And I was away from all my friends for about nine years. So you can imagine, you know, you say hi to them and they're so happy to hear from you. And then suddenly you say, I'm with such and such life insurance (laughs) company. And then it's starting to get cold at the other end, right? I think the big takeaway from that was I learned how to get away from the fear of cold calling people. And they did a lot of training and sales techniques there. So that was a big takeaway. But a big turning point after that is I was offered a a job interview for a Japanese company. And it was a very famous name brand. So it was quite an opportunity to jump on. And it would also give me regular income, expecting my first baby, my son. So that would uh, give a little bit more comfort for my wife that I had full-time income. And I got went over to a company called Mitsui and Company. It's one of the largest and oldest Japanese trading houses in Japan. Yes. My first job, though, was not exactly what I wanted. I wanted to be in sales because I was kind of training towards that end of things. And the only position was accounting. But it was, it was a way in the company. I didn't know too much about accounting, so I had to take a lot of night school courses, business courses at night. It was all fun. And I had to take care of profit and loss statements, foreign exchange. And that was a good foundation to learn before actually getting into business. So it was all good. The big turning point was after a year and a half, I was transferred into the sales department of the forestry. and. As you may know here, British Columbia's biggest industry is forestry. So that created a huge opportunity for me. And you you had that numbers back with the sales, which is really powerful. I think when I've heard many top uh, business people saying an accountant that can sell is a very powerful combination. Yes, I've started and run businesses. And as you know, you have to deal with bankers and you have to give a bit of a song and dance in front of them. And I always say I've had some accounting background. I did two audits with Deloitte because it was a publicly traded company. And they just smile like, oh, yes, here's a business owner that understands accounting and numbers. So it was very helpful to do that. 
during the, the forestry business, I started out in lumber. And you wouldn't believe my first phone call when I sat down at my desk. Guess what it was? What was it? Well, believe it or not, I, I picked up the phone and there's this young kid behind it. And he said, so what are we going to do about our claim that we have now? And I had no idea what he was talking about. But this young kid, believe it or not, is, is the CEO of a huge American lumber wholesale company. His, his office does $400 million of sales to this day. So you never know who you talk to, right? But somehow I, I managed to do my very first business settling a claim. Wasn't doing a sales. <laughs> How did you feel when you when you picked up that phone? Like, did your stomach drop to the floor? Like, what happened? Yeah, exactly. Of course, that's a natural reaction. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, I just sat here. And, Give me a sale. And nobody told me about this, so I had to talk to the Tokyo head office, and and they helped me along. They're very supportive. They're happy I was on the team. And somehow we, we all worked it out. Both sides were happy. And I think it was because Tokyo knew I was new. They wanted to support me. So they just supported me by keeping my supplier happy. It wasn't a big amount of money for them. It was just pocket change to Mitsui. Yeah. And it, it, it kept that relationship, which is so important for Japanese companies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's great because you've, I think you've also worked for North American companies, like you said, like the Japanese sort of businesses, they focus, I tend to focus on long-term relationships. And it sounds like sort of a perfect example of of doing that because it sounds like they've went out of their way to to make this a good experience for you. Yeah, they did. And through the career, a lot of things happened at Mitsui. One notable one was the big earthquake in Kobe. Oh, If you recall that Mm -hmm. news. Tens of thousands of people died in that. And I've been to Kobe myself, so it was Mm -hmm. a beautiful city. And just going back there and seeing the devastation, just really Mm mind-boggling. But Mitzi created this new division out of New York, Mm -hmm. and it was called the Housing Division. Mm -hmm. So I got spun into there, uh, started in lumber, and then expanded into all building materials, like windows, doors, flooring kitchen yeah. cabinets. Yeah. And that kind of broadened my scope. From there, I did about 230 houses yeah. using Canadian framers. And I did a lot of project work, not just routine um, business where I'm just selling pulp or paper or logs. This was very interesting for me. And it broadened my, my horizon in the building materials area. I was still in my 30s back then. so. From there, I, I also turned around my, my hat. I was more of a purchasing manager. And I started shifting away from just purchasing and selling to my team overseas to asking them, what can you provide me so I can sell into the North American market? Mm. So I started out with flooring. Mm-hmm. And my first contract was with a home center. It's currently called Rona, but back then it was Revy. Mm-hmm. And I became a vendor of, of Ren, Revy. And most people just jump on this and sign the dotted line. <laughs> but being very careful in a Japanese corporation, 
had to talk to my legal department, 36-page vendors agreement. There's a lot of things that didn't quite fit with our business model. So I consulted with my legal, and then I talked to the vice president of Revy and said, hey, can I change a couple of things? Because we're not really comfortable with your terms here. Can I cross out this section, right? And he said, sure, no problem. Most people don't ask. But so they usually just jump on and sign and away they go. But I'm glad you asked the question. So here's an example where you should really, you can negotiate sometimes when you're a vendor. Not all the times, but it doesn't hurt to ask. Yeah, absolutely. Don't, don't assume stuff. It ma- makes a lot of sense. No, no. But and other things, working for a large corporation is I've created a lot of relationships and did business with a lot of huge companies, dealing with CEOs of those companies, because I was representing an avenue to get into Japan or that market. And that really helped me feel comfortable dealing with top management in different corporations. Mm-hmm. And you meet all kinds. You meet some who are very soft-spoken, and then you real you meet these really hard-nosed people, both Canadian, American, or European. So I kind of was able to work around working with those types of people. And that was a great experience for me. Fantastic. Uh, so you're kind of become sort of the go-between the two countries. That's right. Okay. What, what did you learn in that process? Well, I guess through living in Japan, learning local customs and cultures, learning a language is one thing. You can, you can study on your computer. But you don't really get those cultural aspects. You have to actually live in the country. Mm-hmm. And then you work in the country. So you get those business cultural aspects too, not just day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. And so I became a bridge between North America and Japan in the business sense. I'm quite proficient in Japanese spoken. I can read and write a little bit. Not as well as my kids, of course. But yes. uh, just enough to get by. I do have a Canadian accent in my Japanese because I learned later in life, but that's okay. Um, they, they all accept that I'm from a biracial background and, and uh, the Americans or Canadians or Europeans also accept that I can be a bridge for them into the Japanese market. Now, when, so, when you sort of are that bridge and obviously you probably go on trips where you invite these partners to meet with companies in Japan, were you prepping them somehow? Like, were you, were you giving them tips coming in? Oh, of course. Um, for example, there's cultural differences when you, when you greet people. Uh, you know, North Americans uh, give a very firm handshake. Uh, when they give you a business card, they almost throw it at you uh, <laughs> sometimes, like a dealer in a casino. Uh, and, and Japanese get shocked by that because... They they have a different way of greeting in business. They bow, uh, they get your business card out of a card holder, uh, have the business cards with the name facing the rece- uh, recipient, yeah. and um, it's you know, very ritualistic. You're not touching each other. I guess that's good in the sense you're not transmitting a, a cold or something <laughs> to them when you're holding, when you're touching. So. You know, me being a, a biology background, I always think about those things too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I prep them. Um, 
I tell them, don't worry, I'll be with you. I'll do most of the talking and we'll just have a good time. And uh, I just put them at ease. I, I've brought several, several suppliers over to my customers. We made deals right in front of them, sold several containers right in front when they're sitting right there. Yeah. Because I prepped the other side too. Yeah. So both sides were be, would be happy. And he goes, Eric, you did an amazing job. <laughs> and yeah, thanks. <laughs> That's awesome. That's yeah, but I did you know, a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Before they show up, prep it so that both sides have that expectation. Now, has there been a situation where something's kind of gone wrong? No fault of your own, but something's kind of miscued that you had to kind of scramble to deal with? Yeah. I, I had a funny customer in Japan. Oddly enough, he's one of my best friends now. Yeah. But at the time, I brought my supplier there, and this, it was a trading company. Yeah. And we sat there, and they were very rough and a little bit rude to us. And then they cut the meeting off, and we were in the waiting area. And then they just left the room, and then we go, well, what was that all about, <laughs> right? And normally, they, they show us to the door or elevator and you know, bow nicely and that, that was a very strange experience. What happened there? So I, I later found out that one of my colleagues in my, my American company had a bit of a falling out, I guess, in the past. And, and he kind of took that upon me. And I didn't know anything about that. But it happened. But later on, that general manager and I became best of friends. And we talk a lot. We've done a lot of business together. Yeah. And it was one of those situations. Also, behind my back, those guys were talking to my supplier and say, why do you have to deal through this guy? We can deal <laughs> directly, right? So that was very awkward, too. And my supplier didn't like that, obviously. And, and we had a signed agreement together to work together. So it's all open book. But it was very strange. But that's one example I can think of. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's very good. It's very difficult to sort of be sort of the go-between and, and make things work. Now, you talked about customs in Japan and sort of business practices. And one of the things that the Japanese companies and, and sort of culture is known for is having exceptional customer service. Now, I would love to explore that some more. What is, can you give me some examples of practices that, that we can, as North American companies, learn from Japan? Sure. Well, Let's just start out with something very general. For example, if you go to a department store in Japan and you purchase something, there's always somebody there to help you out, provide service, knowledge, explain the product. And then they take you to the cashier and you pay for it. They wrap it up in nice department store paper. Or if they ask if it's a gift, they put nicer wrapping on it and put it in a nice bag. You pay for it, and then they say, thank you for your business. <laughs> and you just feel like, wow, I enjoyed that experience shopping there. You, you remember the department store, yeah. what kind of service you got, and you feel good when you leave. Yeah. Whereas nowadays, due to kind of, I guess, the mentality is cost-cutting here, and you don't even have cashiers anymore. You just have kiosks where you just scan and do it yourself. So that I kind of miss that service mm -hmm. aspect, and that's just a very, very general thing. Mm -hmm. But specifically in business, I think Japanese have a philosophy for long-term thinking. 
how to reach their goals. And they do that by generating value to the customer and society as their starting point. Mm -hmm. They don't try to make a quick buck right away. So the short-term decision-making is not to say, okay, let's make a quick profit at the expense of this customer or supplier. That's kind of a Japanese mentality. I'm not saying that all North Americans do that, but some do. And for example, you go into a department store here, it's hard to find somebody to help you Mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. Specifically with Japanese building materials companies, they also create long-term relationships, help customers grow their business. By doing that, they sometimes arrange educational tours, take them to job sites so that they can see their products being used. And then they can take that back and try to improve upon it or, or do something to make the experience better. Or some large building distribution companies help the customers or suppliers with super long payment terms to help the cash flows, to help them grow. Mm-hmm. So one thing I do, when I, every time I do go to, back to Japan, one thing I notice is everything that you mentioned, but I feel like that the delivery of the enthusiasm and kind of the group oh. accountability towards the customer experience seems at a level that's extremely high. I'm, I'm not sure if culturally if that's what supports it, but it seems like that the feeling, like you said, that genuine feeling that they care definitely gets passed on through every staff member. Yes, definitely. That's very traditionally uh, every day there's a little short meeting and I did this when I was a high school teacher there would be a short meeting at the beginning of each day and we would go over our company vision and how to report to each other talk with about issues going on in the school and that's practiced everywhere throughout society whether it's mom and pop shop or a huge multinational corporation. Did you do exercise together? Actually, in high school, I did. <laughs> it's a high school thing, I guess. So exercise, moving yeah. around. When I worked at Mitzi, I was working here locally in Vancouver. So I, I worked in an office tower and worked long hours, believe it or not. But I'll talk about that a little later. And I got out of shape. But in Japan, when I went over there, I went to factories. They start the day moving your body and just kind of getting rid of your aches and pains. And that's all to do with safety over there. Getting that mentality to be more productive and safe. Okay. So a daily kind of reinforcing behavior around communicating to the customer values and, and sort of health. So that's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll dive in deeper maybe. It's part of my Japanese lesson I'd like to do at the end of this <laughs> sure. uh, interview. Sure, sure. So. <laughs> so we're talking a bit about routines and habits. What are your sort of routines or habits for success? Where, where have you collected your thoughts from? Yes, well, a lot of this started from my days at Mitsui and working for an American company, for that matter, is I was working very long hours and... I wasn't eating properly. I was getting fat. I started developing your midlife belly. Mm-hmm. Doctors would say, you know, I have high cholesterol, high blood pressure, threatening me with meds. So that wasn't very a good path for me. 
I always had brain fog. I was always tired. Uh, around lunch, I was ready to kill somebody, <laughs> you know, like hangry. <laughs> I had this experience of getting together with my old university buddies, and one of them was a uh, professor in physiology, and he got me to change my diet, start eating higher fats, and take out all the carbs of my body. So my first habit was health and wellness due to that. And it improved my personal productive productivity 100%. If I can't take care of myself, like how can I take care of my team, yeah. right? Give us some examples. I mean, when you say health and productivity, do you mean like you felt better at the end of the day or, or your mood was different? Or uh, give us some clean examples. Okay, well, I'll give you some background. Time is money. Time is when you're running businesses, you don't have much time. So how can I use the least amount of time to make the maximum mm-hmm. benefits? And I use this term, if you might, some people in the audience might know, it's called biohacking. And it's a process to make changes with the least amount of effort. So I work on five main areas, diet, mind, body, rest, and lifestyle. And just to dive in deeper, like diet, I took out all the sugar out of my diet. I was a sugar yeah. addict. And when I switched over, I, I actually lost a lot of weight and body fat. I was 26% body fat, and now I'm around 14% body mm-hmm. fat. And it just lifted this cloud in my mind. I go, wow, what happened? Everything is clear now, and I could think faster. So that's one example. Was it easy, though? Because a lot of people want to do was, that, and they kind of struggle yeah. with it. Or what? Was the guidance or how, how did you do it? It's probably what I want to ask. Yes. Well, I did have guidance. My professor friend was guiding me because if you just try doing it on your own, you'll just fall off the wagon mm-hmm. easily. And a few of our, my friends did. They're out entertaining, drinking beer <laughs> with clients. And that didn't take long. I see them on Facebook and I, I bug them. It didn't take you long to fall off. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I did have guidance. It's always good to have coaches or mentors when you're starting something new. And he was my coach to get me through this process. It was very tough at the beginning to switch your diet from eating cakes and sugar and lots of sweet stuff to more of a high fat diet. But once my body changed, I lost those cravings and it just became part of my lifestyle from yeah. there. When did you do this diet? Were you in Japan at that time or were you mostly in uh, the States? No, I was okay. here. I was here. This was five years ago. We had a reunion out at Whistler five years ago, and I did this over here. I was eating your typical North American mm-hmm. diet, which a lot of it is fast food. When you're running, you just go out, grab something quick, and eat in the car sometimes. So that adds stress to your body physical and mental. And so I also add meditation Mm. to that daily. And a lot of CEOs now use that as their daily routine. And that's um, become mainstream. It used to be like a hippy-dippy thing to do. But now it's kind of a mainstream. How long do you do it for? Oh, I I do 20 minutes a day. But I I use a biohack. And that's using this biofeedback headband. It's a Canadian invention called Muse. And I can actually see my, or track my brain waves, see if I'm like in high beta or I'm calming down. 
And it gives me feedback to just get back to my meditation rather right, about thinking about work and things. So that's part of my biohacking. Of course, I do exercises because like a lot of your audience, if you don't move, you kind of get into a rut and you need to move. I have a home office and sit in my computer sometimes. And then every hour or so, I stand up, got a couple of barbells. I start lifting weights. It only takes a minute or two. And then I go back to work. So it's just being as efficient as possible and keeping your mind clear. Mm -hmm. Of course, resting is a huge thing. Getting quality sleep, not just quantity, but quality sleep so that you can recover and be fresh for the next day. And lastly, I would just walk outside with my dog and get some fresh air and sunshine on my body because you're, you're stuck in an office sometimes and you're just getting artificial light and it's not very healthy. So getting outside, getting some fresh sunshine just helps you overall. So those are kind of my health and wellness things that I do. If you have any other questions, you're free to ask. Yeah. I, we can dive down deep into a rabbit hole on this subject, believe me. <laughs> yeah, I know you love this stuff. I mean, what's you mentioned a few things. I mean, for people that aren't, they're looking at all the things that you mentioned and they want to pick out one thing that to start on. What would you suggest? What's the, what's the key that, that they should focus on? Okay, well, you go to a doctor and they say, exercise more and eat less. Mm -hmm. Well. That sometimes isn't the best advice. It's just a common advice that people give with probably very little nutritional background. But I would focus more. The very first thing I would focus on is recovery. Just getting a good night's sleep is probably a good start. And that means sleeping in a very dark room to blacken your windows and turn off all those blinking lights and distractions you have in your, your room, your bedroom, your, your phones, or, or any light sources, just black them out with some electrical tape. Sleep in a little bit of a cooler temperature because your body doesn't need that hot atmosphere to rest. And just before sleep, I turn off all my devices. I wear blue blockers, kind of look like a cool rock mm -hmm. star that blocks all the blue light before I go to bed, and that just sets my circadian rhythm so that I can get a better night's sleep. So starting with a good night's sleep, I think, is a start, and then you can start doing the exercise and the diet changes. Just take it one step at a time. Wow. That's good. It's very similar to the advice one of our other in sort of guests said as well. So definitely a, a hmm. great place to start. Now, You've, you've yeah. learned a lot and d dealt with lots of big companies and CEOs and done lots of different things. You must have had lots of mentors that have helped you along the way. Can you tell us about some of those experiences? Yes. Well, mentors can be various things to different people. For example, a, a very good book, which is a cheap source of getting some mentorship or listening to podcasts. But I did find actual people to improve my skills and development. I hired a CEO coach and we focused on you know, my short-term, long-term goal planning. I did gratefulness journaling, leadership development, and I shifted from being a boss to an authentic leader. That really helped. When you start a business, you always want to be a boss. 
but you're actually not being a leader. So that brought me back to my teacher's experience where you're leading others by influencing or inspiring or you're supporting and encouraging any individuals. And so I brought that teaching experience into my business. I also did meet several CEOs of large corporations. I had the opportunity to meet a guy who ran four publicly traded companies somewhere in transportation and when, when his last job was in the forest industry. But they're all multi-billion dollar companies that he ran. And, uh, you know, it was quite valuable to, to learn his philosophy. And I've incorporated some of his philosophy into my business. He gave me his, his list of what his philosophy is. Yeah. Guess what his first, first item is? No idea. What is it? Okay. Well, this is very interesting. And he's incorporated some Japanese management and American management into his philosophy. He did graduate from NYU. He did his MBA there too. But the very top list is safety. Uh-huh. And a good safety record means that you can achieve versus traditional reason. I'll bring up another example on safety. This is a very famous yeah. one. Do you know Alcoa Aluminum? Uh, not, not, not have you, have you heard yeah. of that company? That's based in Pittsburgh. It's a, a very famous case study taught in business. A gentleman named Paul O'Neill started up that company. He was the new CEO coming in. And all the shareholders were expecting him to talk about revenues and profits to start. But he started up with his speech talking about safety as the keystone habit. Mm. And the shareholders were very nervous <laughs> to hear this, like, wow, this, this is kind of weird. But that habit changed the company culture. And guess what? It multiplied their profits five times over his period. Yeah. So changing the culture from the very basics creates good habits, yeah. right? Well, what was the connection? Focusing on what do you think profits? the connection was with safety and the profits? Is it the, the culture of caring about their employees? That's exactly it. Yeah. He showed that he cared more for the employees. They started looking out for themselves, rearranged the factory so safer they had fewer down days from accidents, which is huge because every time you have an accident, that makes a huge economic impact on a company. And the workers were a little happier Mm. now. So when you have Mm. happier employees, then that drives up profits. Mm. It's not the other way around. When you have happy shareholders and unhappy employees, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be profitable. Yeah, that's true. There's There's a famous quote, which I can't remember, and I'm going to butcher it saying this, but something along the lines of few exceed your employees' expectations, they'll go and exceed the customer's expectations because they're kind of feeling great about the company and stuff like that. So I guess it all sort of passes through, right, to the, to the customer. That's right. So that's probably a big part of Japanese companies. They use that. And you mentioned earlier, did I, did I do exercises in the morning? Well, that's all part of their business culture is to focus on the people, make sure they feel safe and happy. They communicate well with each other. They gain little teams. And let's see how we can improve the the process. Yeah, definitely. I do notice that the companies that sort of don't focus on the product or the technologies, 
but the, the ones that really focus on their people and helping them achieve their goals uh, seem to do the best. Yeah, for sure. So you're into a lot of different things. What, what sort of other things are you curious about right now? Well, as you know, I'm quite a curious person. <laughs> when I was a child, I, I watched a very famous science documentary. Yeah. You may know it. It's called Star <laughs> Trek. <Yeah. laughs> and that got me into science, and I was curious about that. And that's why I ended up getting a science background, which eventually I'm still using today in my current yeah. company because I want to think about my children's um, future. They're in university now and things, what's going on now is it's just crazy. We're, we're living in six mm-hmm. buildings. You look at the gypsum board on the inside, it looks fine. If you tear it out, it's all full yeah. of mold, which is very cancerous, very bad for your health. And and just bothers me to mm-hmm. see that. So I want to use my biology background, my business background, and just work on how to create or leave a better world before I, I move on to my last stage of mm-hmm. retirement. No, that's, that's very good. I mean, I, I know you're very passionate about that cause and you've, you've assembled a group of people around you that are also very passionate about helping people and, and helping, helping the world, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess it's similar to your Peter. I think that's part of his main message yeah, too, correct? Absolutely. He cares about that as well. Yeah. So that's my hope. Well, I think you're doing a... I think a lot of people are yeah, turning to that. I think you're so, doing yeah. a good job. Now, I've asked you so many different questions. Is there anything that I should have asked you, but I didn't? Sure. Well, maybe I can teach you a few terms. Excellent. If you don't mind. Excellent. Let me kind of list some out. I'm going to teach you three business terms that I worked on just for for teaching the audience because I am a bridge between two different cultures. And let's let's teach the audience a little bit of Japanese. <laughs> so <laughs> here's me being a, a school teacher. Again. Yeah, it, it never goes away, right? Your background, you know, it never goes away. It's all it's always helpful. I think the first word. A lot of people are familiar with is called kaizen. Yep. Kaizen is probably a Japanese term, just like sushi. <laughs> it, it's in our vocabulary now. So on the surface, most people know it means continuous improvement. But on a deeper level, it's really creating a process of eliminating waste and giving respect to people and your partners. So partners means both your customers and suppliers, if that's the case. And giving help to grow mutually together. Yeah. So that's Kaizen on a deeper aspect. Next one, and this is this was driven into me when I was in at Mitsi. It's called Genchi Genbutsu. Mm-hmm. Genchi Genbutsu. And that phrase means to go out and see for yourself and thoroughly understand the situation. Now that word is really vital part of the Toyota production system. And I was trained to do this at Mitsi. And you may know that Mitsi and Toyota are pretty closely linked together yep. throughout history. And there's a lot of joint venture. You know, Mitsi is kind of like a silent partner with a lot of Toyota's business too. In fact, here in Canada, Mitsi is 
joint venture owner of Toyota Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you don't know that because they're a silent partner. Yeah. So what I did was I went to job sites or factories and you just ask why so many times just to get a better understanding of your products or why is it made this way or how can you improve the, the situation as it's used at the job site. So when you make a product, you think it's the greatest thing, but when you see it being used at the job site, those guys are struggling with it because it wasn't quite made the way that they needed to be made. So that's why it's best to go out and see for yourself and then you can adjust. Yeah. So I have a question about implementation. Like, is it implemented on like the most senior level? Like the senior managers, they go out to manufacturing facilities or is it meeting with customers and stuff like that? Or is it, is it kind of, broken down into middle management and other people where they take people to the job site or the customer site to interact and sort of close the gap between sort of, I guess, the corporate office environment and then the realities of the marketplace. How is it implemented? Right. Okay. Well, before I answer that fully, it really leads into my next term. It's called whole and so. Hold in. So that word literally translates into spinach, but it's actually (laughs) a three part phrase that's been combined. So the three parts, and I had to recite this every morning when I was a high school teacher in Japan at a Mm -hmm. staff meeting. So the whole in Hoden So is short for whole koku, Mm -hmm. and that means to report. Mm -hmm. And the len is short for denmaku, Mm -hmm. that means to give updates periodically. Mm-hmm. And the so is for so down, and that means to consult or advise. To get back at your original question, um, senior management and companies use Horen, so it depends on where and when. If you have a middle manager visiting customer or high-level executive talking to other high-level executives or just guys on the ground, yep. what they all do is take their Genji Genbutsu, or site experience, yep. and they teach each other through Hodenso. That means they report, they give updates regularly, and they consult and advise. So the whole company is on the same page. Mm. And it doesn't matter what, if you're high, middle, or low, it happens all the time throughout the company. I see. So I get it. The spinach makes the company strong. Is that what they're trying That's to say? That's right. <laughs> um, <laughs> The phrase I had to say is Holen so so that they all and means let's grow spinach together. Right? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and, and so and be Popeye the Sailor Man or something. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's how you translate it here. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. So no, I, I appreciate it. It gave us some hints on how, how we can take your experience that you've learned and translate it to companies here in, in North America. So I definitely appreciate that. I'm sure the audience appreciates all the things that you share with us today. Now, if people want to get a hold of you for learning more about you and your company or whatever else, how would they get a hold of you? Sure. Well, I'd be happy either talking about my own products or even if they wanted to consult with me about how do I get into Japan or vice versa, you can reach me at my website. It's www. CBT group, that's Charlie Bravo Tangle group dot CA. CA is for Canada. Perfect. So thank you very much. Eric, thank you so much. 
And yeah, that's that's it for today. And I want to thank everyone for listening to Specified. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, please forward along. And send me a note, drop me a comment, send me a review if you have any feedback or suggestions. And I will talk to you soon. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.